Thank you for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former world amateur number one Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan. Okay, it is the end of the year, and it is time for maybe the final Silver Club podcast of the season. We've got Chandler Withington, the creator and founder of Archive 22, a great artist that you're going to see a lot of shortly. But most importantly, before we get to Chandler, we've got Colin Sheehan in the house. I am so happy to be able to chat with you finally. I know it's been super busy year, but what is going on in your world, Colin? Steve, great to see you, man. Um, we are uh, pretty busy. <laughs> um, thrilled to, uh, we had a great fall with the, with the Yale golf team. We beat the Ohio State University out at Maidstone, and we, and we beat Michigan twice. So, <laughs> um, boys, played, boys played great. Wow. Uh, had, we had fun. We played in the worst conditions we've ever seen at Maidstone. Third time this event has, has happened. Third time the weather was basically borderline unplayable. I know everyone says that about certain conditions. I mean, I mean it. Like they have the blind par three there, uh, the eighth hole with the flag, the extra long flag stick that was literally bending 90 degrees while kids were putting to it. How about that? <laughs> like now that you can keep the flag in. <laughs> wow. But um, that was fun. We had we had a we had a great time. We went and played it. Um, you know, we we went back to Colgate and we had a trip. We we hosted at the uh, McDonald McDonald Cup. Uh, Minnesota actually won. Um, but uh, a really fun, a really really fun year with the guys. Nice. How about yourself? How's nice. It? Yeah. No. It's uh, yeah. It's been it's been a great year. Uh, the society is has uh, moved along really nicely and uh, we've we've had some amazing venues I, a couple episodes ago we spoke a little bit about uh, our trip to Scotland uh, 36 whole day at Muirfield was by far my favorite day of the year um, and maybe I think in my top three or five in golf um, it was it was such a cool experience Scotland has the those vibes, those uh, the, the feeling of going back in time in a way, and feeling the the ghosts of all the the past watching over you as you eat lunch in Muirfield, and and just as you traverse around all the golf courses in Scotland, you just you feel like you could you know there'd be somebody in a set of hickories at any point could just whip it out with a you know, a gutta percha ball or whatever, and it just going back in time completely. It it almost feels sacrilegious to play those golf courses with modern equipment. You're wrong. <laughs> when you're on the, the day at Muirfield, you're right. It's you're reminded that's the there's the uh, it's the royal and ancient game, and they wear it. They just get to own centuries of prehistory of history to, of stewardship. Yeah, and then it's if the golf course wasn't interesting or if they didn't do a particularly good job with the lunch, you know, Muirfield doesn't, isn't guaranteed to be this wonderful experience just because the club is old, but boy, do they get that experience? It's the experience of the day with the sort of big lunch and alternate shot and this fantastic balanced links course. I mean, that is probably, I'd have to say the, my, if I had one last 
golf experience one day left, it would be a Muirfield day, you know, jacket and tie. And, and yeah, like there's, I think the perfect, they knew, they, they understood what the total experience was and that's the Muirfield day. Yeah. Uh, I keep telling, I just, the other day I mentioned to Zach about the tree farm that for catering, we're having a conversation and I'm like, we should have a Muirfield. There should be like, um, your field lunch day. <laughs> I like Come, just take that, just lift that whole experience, bring it, bring it east. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really shocked that that really there's not me- I mean, nothing that I, comes to mind for me that you know that a club would do that maybe once a month or you know to go and play you know four ball and then foursomes and then uh, and to to have that kind of that kind of formal type day and to to really it really connects you to. Uh, everything that's gone on in the game, and it's not this overly stuffy sort of experience at all. It, it, it's just a, it's just a, it's golf, but a different brand of golf, I think. And and I think everybody's looking for different brands of golf. I mean, certainly we've seen it on the professional game uh, this year with the the live stuff. We don't have to get into that, but but different brands of golf can be fun. You know, match play. I think every time we see match play on TV, we love match play. Um, because of that, because we see basically only stroke play. And so different brands of golf, I think are really fun and, and, uh, are, are exciting for golfers. You know, the, um, more than a few clubs now are doing like they're doing a society day or a British golf day. SFGC does it. Marion's doing it. And it's all about like alternate shot, big lunch. And they've had the, I know that when SFGC did it, they had like 180 golf, 80 members came out <laughs> to participate in their, in their British golf day. I mean, why it's like, how about make that every Saturday, you know, every two weeks or yeah. uh, every, every club, it should be like a week on the weekends in order to accommodate everybody. And for your sake, we're just going to go two ball only. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or I could see that's something that another tree farm reference, but, you know, the daylight, you know, when you, you play your winter golf in the southeast or you travel down for it, you realize how quick, how short the days can be if you're trying to play 36. And it wouldn't be unreasonable from the middle of December to the end of January. Uh, we were saying that just it'll that sort of three and four ball matches will not have any standing on certain days. Like you can either play as singles or you can play foursomes. But in order for everyone to get around twice, we need you know, we, our window is only uh three and a half hour rounds. Like that's it. That's the only way it's going to, going to work. Yeah, no, it's certainly, certainly small. Um, yeah, we love talking about the history of the game. I mean, that's really what, what connects all of us and really, uh, makes us all appreciate different eras of the game. But, you know, I think about our podcast that we've done this year. Episode 60 was really special. We had Curtis Strange on just before the U.S. Open. Certainly he won when it was at Brookline back in the late 80s, and he was gracious enough to come on the podcast and uh, talk about some of his experiences there against facing Nick Faldo in that Monday playoff. And one of the stories I really loved was his twin brother had come in to watch that playoff and the guard just let him through. I mean, he's like a spitting image of Curtis Yeah. and he, Alan the guard just it. let him through. And, and, uh, and Alan, it was hanging out with some buddies on the porch before the playoff and, and he was drinking a beer or something. And he was like, you know, he was kind of watching all the people watch him 
because he was thinking that Curtis was drinking a beer before he was going out to play the U.S. Open. Like, anyway, you got to listen to that episode if you haven't. Uh, episode sixty, that really, that was that was cool. But um, you know, we had a cool the the country club is fascinating. It, it was great that they were finally back. It was that was one of the highlights of the year getting getting to have that course back in the tournament rotation. I was blown away by the the terrain of the some of the early holes. You know what was for the U.S. Open purposes there that third hole that kind of epic par four that like I had I had forgotten about that part of the course or just hadn't remembered it as as having it be as dramatic as that and it reminded me it had almost it was one of the few times I've ever sort of had seen a course in in America with sort of Yale this was sort of the scale of Yale to an extent you know mm-hmm. like just with fairways where you could be too far left and right, be in the fairway and totally blind and blocked out. Like, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it just, uh, that gorgeous clubhouse and porch and the history of that place. It was, uh, that was a highlight. That was, that was a, that was a great, that was great for golf that, that, that after all that time, that place is back in the mix. Cause it just, it, that was a win for the USGA, you know, and, and what a dramatic finish. And the whole story of Fitzpatrick, amateur champion, U.S. Open champion, was so f- terrific. What a rare feat that was. Yeah, that that was. I mean, I, I want to say the last time that happened was Jack Nicholas winning on the same course for the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. So, um, yeah, pretty rare feat we saw this year. Uh, you know, kind of looking forward – and, and we'll keep on this U.S. Open theme because it really ties into Chandler Withington and, and all his artwork that he's doing. But, you know, we look forward to next year, L.A. Country Club. You know, we went from East Coast to at, uh, at Brookline now all the way to L.A. What are you looking for out there at, at LACC for the U.S. Open? Well, I know that people could have had the hardcore fans probably got a glimpse of it during the Walker Cup. But just like Brookline uh, or an introduction Brookline was a reintroduction, but for for a lot of people, first time ever, and and for everyone, LACC, no one will have seen this place. Right. Um, essentially, it's the, the tickets are going to sell out. It's going to be uh, fascinating to be in sort of in such an urban area. Like you know, Brookline might be on the out in the suburbs, but <laughs> LACC is in the city, uh, as is Riviera, of course, and but even closer to sort of business district. And so fascinating, like uh, disparity between sort of the density around it and this just incredible golf terrain that they're so for that, 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 that routing takes on. It's going to, I can't wait. I, I'm definitely, uh, I'm looking forward to being out there for that. That should, that'll be an event. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it, it's certainly, it's been really interesting what, what we've seen out of the U S open, and really condensing their number of venues over the course of, you know, the last few years, we've seen these announcements of, you know, Pinehurst really being that that home of the USGA. And they're obviously building, uh, you know, the, the southern uh, the southern headquarters, if you will, there for the USGA and the World Golf Hall of Fame is going to be there. And so Pinehurst is really going to be a, a hotbed. And then you look at Oakmont, uh, Oakmont's going to host. Uh, four times in the next. I mean, they've already booked these things out till uh, 2051. 
Uh, so hopefully we're, we're all still around by then. Yeah. Uh, with they're all not these... really willing to, um, <laughs> they're not going to use the word, but they, they're clearly creating a rota, right? Yeah, it makes they're sense basically... though, right? I mean, these yeah. are venues that we all, I mean, Shinnecock in 26, Pebble Beach has got four on the docket, Marion in 2030, uh, and then Oakland Hills in 34 and 51. So um, yeah, so yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a road, and it kind of makes sense. There's certain venues that lend themselves to, uh, you know, the right, uh, all the, the surrounding areas of the golf course, too, and hosting these major championships so important, and in all the uh, the periphery of the event is so important, and uh, which, you know, Marion doesn't have a ton of periphery, though, does it? Well, fortunately, they have the West course, which will be one of the better uh, renovations in the coming years, but... No, you're right. It's almost like the USGA is trying to tell um, golf developers, stop trying to build future U.S. Open venues because we've already booked them for the next <laughs> 40. Just build short. Do, do not try to – we don't need more U.S. Open <laughs> courses out there. Uh, but, you know, I, I like – I think the uh, – you know, it, it, there's something – the system with the, the British Opens, with the Open Championship venues – I know they could sort of mix in one or two more if they wanted or kind of go modern, but there's, there's, there's something that they, that's really terrific that they, they sort of have St. Andrews anchoring every five years. And then just sort of this, this nice balance of all these places. I, 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 but, but only so many, you know, just enough. And you get, you get to, you get to, you get to know the venues as they come every six, seven years and, and get to return to them. I really like that. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, what are you looking as we look towards the new year? It's it's on the horizon. We've got about four weeks until the year turns to twenty three. What are you looking for for next year, for for the game of golf in general, for your game? I'm eager to uh, take the team on our quadrennial overseas trip in March. Going to do two weeks in England and Scotland. Uh, that was that's been delayed sort of mo- several years to COVID. Sure. So I, I'm looking forward to that experience for the boys on the team and a chance to get over there in March and play some winter, play some <laughs> late winter golf. Um, definitely uh, looking forward to uh, having be the start of a, of a six. Hopefully we get to run it back. As the kids say, we're going to try to, we're going to try to run it back with the Ivy championship yeah. Pretty focused on that with a, yeah. with a, with a really good team. And I know you've met a bunch of them and you, and Blake, of course, from Winston Salem. Mm-hmm. These guys are these guys are uh, they have uh, they remain as motivated as as ever, and I'm very proud of them for that. Okay. I'm looking forward to the spring to the spring semester, and might even um, and then uh, you know in January is we're, we're coming on the 100th anniversary of the gift of the Ray Tompkins Memorial to Yale. It's the beginning of the. Uh, the cent- the centenary celebrations and so wow. i've been putting together um uh, a presentation that's sort of the, the history of that of the yale course with sort of uh digressions and sort of uh, the complete works of of charles blair mcdonald and things like that i i hope uh, on a few occasions to get to sort of present it this year uh next year uh, sort of try to be the you know the next Steve Scott out there on the. <laughs> out there on the uh, no, you you know a little bit more about the golf history than I do, so uh, you will don't 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 limit yourself to me uh, by any means. Uh, and how about your own game? You know, are you? I know that Steve. you know you're you're running around the country, you know, coaching, but you're 
you know, I want you to dust the clubs off too. Where where no. are you where are you looking to play golf uh, this upcoming year? Well, I'll tell you. Listen, I don't. You know, I uh, I, I, I you did you sent me a nice text. Uh, I am. I will in, admit that Quentin and I returned to the winner's circle at the Punch Bowl and that we acquitted ourselves. With, yes, you know, yes, the Outpost Club Punch Bowl. Yes, <laughs> the granddaddy. So uh, I, I didn't. I didn't see that coming. Will's in, Will's in denial about that. But uh, <laughs> I, I, Steve, I still take so much um, joy in the game, whether I'm holding the club or not. Uh, I, I, uh, I hope I'd say my goal for 23 is to get get my daughters to make that next step and really want to consistently go hit balls or putt or something. And uh, I am looking forward to taking the family on a Southeast road trip. And they've heard for a few years now about the tree farm and I want to take them to fall line and, and uh, take them to Savannah. And um, we're very lucky New Haven just out of this, the Velo airlines, this like new regional flight. There's now suddenly out of, for the first time in the 15 years we've lived in New Haven, there's direct flights off all through Florida and the Southeast. Wow, there you go. I want to take advantage of it. Nice, nice, nice. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I, I mean, for me personally, I'm, I can't wait to, uh, we're, we're going to make a return trip back to Scotland. I keep going my mind back to Scotland, but we're going to do a cool trip for the Silver Club uh, at the beginning of September. We're going to go over there and watch the, watch the Walker Cup on the final day at the old course. And nice. then and then work our way. We're going to play Kings Barnes and Carnoustie. Work our way up a little north. Go play Nairn and Castle Stewart and Royal Dornick. Uh, finish at Royal Aberdeen, I believe. Uh, so it's kind of like we're going to hit some Walker Cup sites over there, and and then get to see the Walker Cup. So you know that's just one that I'm looking forward to. Uh, we've got so many great venues on the on the docket. Uh, and our schedule is just about ready to come out too. So uh, everybody listening to this podcast is going to have to stay tuned and and reach out to us and hop on our website at silverclubgs.com and be happy to chat with you about everything we're doing at the Silver Club next year. It's our fifth season, Colin. Uh, pretty pretty really hard good, to believe, and but uh, membership's going yeah. great, and we've got uh, just some awesome venues on the docket and. Uh, all the architecturally significant ones that you want to go to. So uh, anyway, that's what I'm looking forward to. I see it. You, it's, you, you do. You, there's such great enthusiasm. It's pure. You know, it really is. Passionate golfers hanging together, good courses, good company. That's why you, that's why, uh, you know, that's why you do it. That's why you, it's the joy you get out of this game. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. But uh, well, look, I can't wait to get to this podcast right now. Chandler Withington and all of the great artistry uh, that he's gone from being this director of golf at Hazeltine Golf Club now to he's going to be adorning all of your walls around the country with all of his great work. He's going to be starting out today. It's launching today, uh, Archive 22, and uh, you're going to see all of his great artwork, all of his all the logos, this great U.S. Open piece that he's starting out with right now and uh, kind of why we're on the U.S. Open theme there I'm but so proud. Uh, yeah i'm so proud of chandler i admire him his talent um, this is someone pursuing you know uh using talent with and with passion and having having them come together a lot of hard work and uh you i can't wait for his stuff to be seen everywhere and and uh you know it shines through that it's the sort of care that's put into it who would possibly take that much time 
to do it unless they just they had such a dedication to their craft and and the in the sort of you know the sort of uh knowing that how much people enjoy having that art on their walls yeah it's definitely a passion project and we're gonna hear it right now so thanks colin great to chat with you happy new year and uh we'll uh, we'll you, catch Jim. up with you again really soon best wishes All right. Well, it's been three years since we've had you on the pod, Chandler, but welcome back to the Silver Club podcast. Thanks, Steve. Always good to see you, talk to you. How are you? Uh, Doing great. Doing great. you got a lot of things going on in your life. I can't wait to dive into all of this stuff. Uh, Your life has taken some twists and turns, and uh, like all of our lives have, but sometimes it's all about the journey, right? Uh, we, We do remember back in episode 23 when you were on the pod and this was, it was over three years ago. It was pre pandemic. Uh, kind of crazy to think. Uh, I remember just talking to you and you were in your office at, as the director of golf at Hazeltine and tell us what's going on in your life right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot has changed, right? If you had, if you had said in 2019, where are you going to be in the, at the end of the year, 2022, I wouldn't have given you the answer that I would, that I'm going to today. Um, but as you mentioned, life is a journey, and uh, we never know what's going to happen next. Um, you know, Steve, I think with with our lives, think about um, when I met you and we worked together in 2005 and six um, in New Jersey. Um, you were with your wife, Christy. You guys have been together a long time. Right. Um, I was single at the time, right? And I think when we're in the golf professional or you're doing any job, when you're single, you can go and do what you want and work as many hours as you want and... Um, make it, you know, kind of to some degree, make your own life. Um, and then, uh, if somebody comes into your life, I, I met my wife, Maureen in Philadelphia. Uh, she was a school teacher at the time teaching seventh grade pre-algebra. So we both had our busy lives. And then, you know, as you have, uh, in your life with your wife, Christy, like we had children come into the equation. We had our first daughter, Peyton in Philadelphia. Uh, we get the opportunity to come out here and be the pro at Hazeltine in 2012. And we've had a two kids since, and I think, the introduction of, of kids into your life changes perspective um, as far as what is important and, and also like where your time goes as well. Um, and uh, knowing you're probably going to ask me about this today, I've, I've had this conversation with people recently and shared with them. I think, you know, there's a, a couple moments in my life uh, since 2019 that have, have made me rethink life a little differently. Uh, we have a uh, family movie night on Friday nights. We, uh, the kids end up their school week. We've got three girls now, 11, seven and uh, four uh, we do pizza and movie night, and um, I think life is made up of, of these moments. And I had a moment. Uh, we're watching the movie Hook. Uh, I don't know if you remember this movie. Um, no, it's Peter never, never saw it. Sounds like a golf movie, but maybe it'd be nice. Slice. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> who would name a golf movie Hook or Shank? That wouldn't be watched by a lot of people. Um, Hook is a is a Peter Pan tale. Uh, Robin Williams, Dustin Hoffman. I think it came out in the late '80s. Um, Robin Williams is a grown Peter Pan. He's left Neverland. And now has a, a wife and kids of his own. He's become a, a businessman, a, a successful one. And for those of you who've seen the movie, or those of you even who haven't, um, what happens in the movie? Uh, you know, Robin is so focused on his business that he's he's missing his little uh, his kids' little league game. And uh, they take this trip uh, over to England uh, to see Granny Wendy. She's grown now and started her own orphanage. And while they're over there, you know, Peter gets this call that this deal he's been working on for so long is falling apart, and he's losing his mind at the thought of this deal falling apart while he's left the country and his kids are running around and playing as kids do. And, and he gets mad at the kids and 
think it was in that moment that his wife kind of uh, stopped him and said, you know, Peter, look around, you know, you're, you're missing the magic. You know, how long do you think it lasts that your kids want to play with you? And I think just watching that movie with, with my own kids, my family, it started to dawn on me that, um, you know, our, our kids are gone in a blink. And I think yours are, are just a little bit older than mine and how fast this goes by. And I think it was in those moments of maybe watching that movie and, and one of the movie got me was uh, Back to the Future. You know, when Marty McFly goes back to 1955 <laughs> and he accidentally interrupts his own story. And um, he's scrambling to put it all back together again and get his parents back together again or else otherwise he doesn't exist. And, um, you know, as time went along, he was slowly getting faded away from the picture. And um, I think it was really just those two moments and conversations that I had with my wife that I, I started to look at our own life. Um, I know the demands of, of time among the, amongst the golf professional. That's nothing yeah. new to us. Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of and, stories um, on that out there. I mean, we've definitely read a lot uh, about about that. I've seen a lot of a lot of great pros really, you know, leave the business and or or move in different directions in the business. I mean, I think like you and I, uh, you know, I was a head pro for nine years as well at a few different places, and yeah, it was, so we we understand those rigors of of the uh, seventy, eighty, or more hour weeks. Uh, I don't know if you can even add it up sometimes, but. But yeah, the, the the industry, you know, maybe go into some of what the what the industry is facing really because it's 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 kind of uh, it, it's a very interesting time in the golf professional. It's a great game, but it's a hell of a business. I think you just touched on it, and you and I have made similar decisions. You know, we we were on the same path uh, 15, 20 years ago, and and going after the same thing. And there are a lot of avenues you can take in golf, but. Um, the family was the main driver of my decision to, to resign from my position at Hazeltine at the end of 2021 was I can't be both. Um, and for the short time that I get to be a dad and for the short time that our kids actually need us and want us in their lives, you know, I, I was going to miss a lot of that. I've already missed a lot of that um, in being the pro at Hazeltine. So uh, we stepped away. But um, I think the question that you're asking, and I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people since leaving. Um people asking the same question as you, you know, what's going on? What happened with, with the job? And um, I think it, what we need to kind of recognize, and for a lot of people who listen to this, um, is I think there's a perception of what the golf professional is and what the job is like, and then there's the reality, which you and I have experienced. So I kind of have this three-minute oral history of the golf profession, so bear with me. I'm trying to run you through this. <laughs> all right, all on, right. On, on, on what I think the, the pivot points have been and, and what the job has become over the last, I'd say, really 150 years. If you go all the way back to 1860-ish era, old Tom Morris, Alan Robertson, really the first documented professionals, what were their jobs? They made golf balls, you know, gutta percha, they made golf clubs, yeah. they made the golf courses, you know, Old Course and Presswick and so many of those courses. Those were really their first uh, job titles. And then they played the game at a high level, right? They were the first participants in the Open Championship. Um, young Tom Morris came along and, and they really drove the Open Championship until people like Harry Barden and Willie Anderson, uh, Ted Ray, and these people brought golf to America in the late 1800s and the U.S. Open starts. Um, but think about what Francis Wimay's win uh, did um, for golf in America. You know, it boomed it, right? Um, yeah, yeah. You're going way back here. This is this is deep. I like I like this history. This is uh, this is good good podcast fodder. Francis Wimay's win, you know, really woke up America to. This is, a, this is a sport, and we can actually beat the Brits at it. So that really got everyone's attention. Uh, three years later, you had the PGA of America formed in 1916. 
and really one of the main drivers right out of the gate there was you had uh, Walter Hagen, who was one of the biggest advocates for professionals being allowed even in the clubhouse uh, just to change their shoes. You know, it was the membership and the professionals were really on, on two different footings, right? Um, you know, you go through to look at where we were in 1950. You had uh, Ben Hogan winning the, the U.S. Open at Marion, winning $4,000. But at the time, Ben Hogan was also the club professional at Hershey Country Club. And yeah, yeah. Claude Harmon was Claude Harmon was the pro at Wingfoot. <laughs> they had day person, jobs, yeah. <laughs> they had day jobs. So um, the participants in these major championships right up until about the mid to late 60s were club professionals. Uh, what changed about a dozen years later was the, the arrival of Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklish, and uh, and the television, right? So TV and those two players, throw Gary, Gary Player in there, really woke up people to watching golf. And that's when the PGA Tour was formed in 1968. And that's when we saw this split between, you know, club professional and playing professional. And the tour as we know it today and the club professional really as we know it today. Um, go a little further. I think when, even when you get into the mid eighties, you know, if anybody ever had the chance to meet RJ Harper, who was the longtime director of golf at Pebble beach, yeah, you know, RJ and the late one, which we all miss, um, RJ, you know, told me when he decided he wanted to work in golf, he drove across the country, arrived at Pebble beach, knocked on the door and said, I'm RJ Harper. I'm here to work. You know, what do you have for me? Uh, he started in the bag room, but was the director of golf within two years. So these, these coveted positions, which we think of today, you know, you think about people like Devin Gee at Oakmont and Mike Gilmore at Wingfoot and, John Sawin is now the guy at Pebble Beach. You know, there'd be a lot of competition for these jobs if they ever opened up. But in the mid-'80s, it still wasn't the glamorous job. Um, so what changed between 1985 you know, and, and about 12 years later? You got to see it up close uh, in person, right? You're right. Um, Tiger Woods, right? So what Tiger did for the game of golf, um, you know, we saw exponential growth uh, right as the time that I was coming out of college. Tiger comes into the game. You see the equipment, the Pro-V, uh, the R7 driver from TaylorMade. The ball is now going further. More people want to play the game. So what is the effect on the golf professional? It's it's more rounds of golf and more people coming through your door. The business also got a lot larger. Um, up until about the early 2000s, a lot of club professionals owned their shop. Um, and then as, as the dollars became bigger and bigger, our budgets got bigger. Maybe our staffs had to get bigger to accommodate uh, the demand and where the game was coming going. Uh, PGM universities were growing and evolving and opening, and there was this big boom, you know, really because of one person who was, you know, dynamic and its impact on the game. Um, then there's there's these last two wrinkles, which I think started to affect uh, both you and I, um, and that was the advent of technology and what it brought into golf, um, which was the cell phone and the effect on, on a golf professional was, um, was really different, you know. Um, not only did golf professionals have to engage the people that were on their property, they had to engage with the people that weren't there through email, text. And I think, you know, what I discovered and, and found was, you know, we were almost like doctors, you know, we were on call 24 seven, you know, if somebody needed us, they were going to text us or call us or email us. And we were always on call no matter where we were. And I think the, the amount of things that have gotten put on the desk of the golf professional really over the last 10 to 15 years, um, think, think just for a second. And as I wrap up this thought, Think about my predecessor at Hazeltine for, for a second, right? Mike Schultz, mm -hmm. a professional at Hazeltine for 37 years. And for the majority of his career, he worked from mid-March through Halloween, locked the, locked the door. His wife worked in the golf shop with him. They went to Florida for the, week, for, for the, for the winter, you know, four and a half month uh, off season, uh, where he never really had to deal with email or text. You know, he got to completely turn off the job. 
uh, for the entire winter. You know, now uh, as the as the professional hazel team, we have learning centers and simulators um, <laughs> and TrackMan, and, and we're engaging our membership through the winter, which we should. It's just you know, if, if you would imagine telling a professional athlete, "Hey, you just finished the play the season and the playoffs, but you're not going to have an off season. We're still going to practice, you know, three or four times a week uh, through the winter." the athlete that would show up the next season to start the season would still be tired. And I think those expectations, it's just that the game and the industry has grown and, and there's been an effect on the golf professional, which you and I both experienced. Yeah, that's, that was one hell of a dissertation right there. I got to tell you. Um, yeah. And you, you definitely, you understand that history and you, you, you've, you've lived the history, right. And you, you, you see it, uh, from so many different sides, obviously we, we work together, uh, as assistant professionals and that has its own, uh, its own side. And then you work your way up the ladder, which is what your goal is when you get into the business. And, and you're right. You, you, I mean, you worked at Marion, uh, and you, you were the, uh, as the, uh, first assistant there, if I'm not mistaken, and then director of golf at Hazeltine and, hanging out with, you know, being involved with the Ryder Cup and, and so many, so many different things. And yeah, it's, it, it, it can seem glamorous on one side, right? Uh, from the member side, it's like, oh, this guy's got the, the greatest job ever, but it's kind of that front of the house, back of the house sort of thing in a, in a restaurant, right? I mean, you have this great maitre d', you got the great service and in the back, you got Gordon Ramsay, you know, yelling at, <laughs> making sure the risotto's right, you know? Uh, so it's, it's, a it is an interesting dynamic where you've shifted to now being an artist. And, you know, we saw some of that as you were director of golf at Hazeltine, we saw some of your talents in the off season. That was definitely something that you kind of put together, but this is, uh, uh, it's something that's always been really a, a part of your life. I know that I actually learned uh, my calligraphy skills from you at uh, at Canoe Brook. So I mean, you always had the the greatest penmanship. I'm like, man, this guy's got he's got some talents, and this artistry has kind of always been with you. Yeah, um, I think if you go back to uh, I don't know if you can recall or the people that are listening can recall. Uh, when you're going through high school and you have that meeting with your guidance counselor and they eventually say to you, all right, Steve, you know, what is it going to be? What are you going to, what are you going to be when you grow up is the end all question that we all get that we feel this weight of having to answer. And what is your dream? And I think before I fell in love with golf, I, my first love was architecture. Um, my dad used to take me around the country. We've seen all these old baseball stadiums and arenas. And I was fascinated by just how different all of them were and how they were built the seating charts, et cetera. And I think my mindset was, well, I'm going to be an architect someday and, and build one of these myself. Um, and I was really in, engaged in my like architecture engineering classes, maybe not so engaged in like biology or English or math. Um, so the harsh reality came when I told my guidance counselor, so yeah, I'm, I'm going to be an architect. And I remember her looking at me and smiling and saying, that's great. It, you're going to be great at it. What else do you like to do? And I thought it was one of these like uh, obligatory, like, you know, tell me more about yourself type questions. And I said, well, I'm starting to like golf. And, you know, she said, could, could there be a career in golf? And, you know, so there are these, these PGM schools that are starting now. And um, I was just about smart enough to get into PGM school, definitely not smart enough to pursue, to pursue architecture. So I kind of had to shelf that dream. Um, and look, while we're talking about the, the club or industry, like I would not change a single thing about the last 20 years. I've been blessed beyond what I could imagine it was going to be like. Um, I'm filled with gratitude. Um, 
but this journey now of, of kind of unearthing something that I wanted to be as a kid, uh, when my wife and I had our third daughter, Charlotte in 2018, um, we had a pretty significant health scare with my wife after delivery. Um, mm. she, uh, developed a, a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in her lungs. Um, pretty scary moment for us as a family, but, uh, thankfully doctors caught it, were able to treat it and we came home, but it, you know, really shook us up to the reality of, you know, life is fragile. And, um, knowing that she went through that, I, I stayed close to home that winter. And I think my mindset became, what do I want to do? And, um, I got the drawing board back out and just started messing around with some things. Originally it was just drawing a course map, um, for Marion. I was trying to draw it to scale without tracing anything. And, um, I was trying to incorporate some of the history of the tournaments they've had, U.S. Opens, Amateurs, uh, Curtis Walker Cups, et cetera. Um, messed around with something for a, another friend of mine at Pebble Beach named John Salwin. And uh, I kind of done the same thing for him where I kind of drew the course map, but I had drawn the, the past logos of the U.S. Opens there from, you know, 72 and 82 and 91, and, or sorry, 92 and 2000, et cetera. And, um, I had fun doing it. And, you know, I kind of wrapped that up in February and, and still had some time left in winter. And I think I had this idea for a while that um, I think I'm kind of a product of the places that I've been at, right? You know, Marion and Hazeltine were talking about the history of golf all the time. And I, I found myself wanting to have things on my wall that were a part of the history of the game. But what I kind of had in my head, it, it didn't really exist. Um, so I had it had it in my mind. I was like, I'll just take my ability to draw things and you know, penmanship, which you alluded to, and I'll try to draw something that allows me to kind of have Wikipedia of sorts on my wall. And um, I drew something I call the history of the U.S. Open. Um, I had shared it with uh, a friend of mine named Tom Coyne, who was coming out of Philadelphia and getting ready to travel the country that yeah, summer. Yeah, the, the great writer Tom Coyne. Yeah, don't don't yeah. Uh, downplay his uh, his accolades. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Tom does these, uh, these trips where he, he really experiences uh, these countries through the eyes of golf, not only just the best golf courses, but the ones you never heard of and really opens up our eyes to what golf looks like in America. But Tom was going to be playing all the U.S. Open courses, and I was doing this artwork at the same time. And I said, hey, Tom, like, I know you're going to all these places. You know, are you looking for a gift for all your hosts? And I kind of showed him what I was doing. And we got to the end of it, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm taking those with me. And uh, ended up being the the greatest accidental marketing tour that I could have envisioned. Um, I remember getting texts from him saying like, "Oh, people are flipping out about this," and I was like, "Like people are going to hang it on their wall? Like that's that's nuts." <laughs> um, you know, I kind of I did it for me, and I was happy with it at the end. I, I didn't really stop to think that there were other people that were going to gravitate towards it or want it. Um, but that's really where this this all started from um, was back in the the, the winter of twenty eighteen nineteen. So you're turning this love of artistry into a business now. Archive 22 launches today. I mean, we are we are in the midst of of somewhat of golf history here. I mean, you have you have great artists out there. I mean, Lee Wybranski does wonderful work. Uh, uh, there's a lady named Cassie Tully who I got to meet at the Ryder Cup uh, back at Whistling Straits. Um, but but yeah, what you're doing, it, it's a different flair. Talk about this. Talk about where the name came from. Uh, you know, kind of dive into, you know, this business side of it, turning the this love into a business. Yeah, you just mentioned some people who I have a great admiration for um, as artists that I hesitate to even call myself an artist because like, I don't even know how to paint. Oh, you're, um, you're an artist. You're an artist. We're, we're, yeah. <laughs> you, you, can, I, uh, you're, you, you can draw. You, you're a... Uh, we will yeah. we will classify you there wherever you want to classify yourself as you're definitely there. 
So you, you mentioned Lee Wabransky and Cassie, who are phenomenal what they do. I mean, I've, I've got a whole guest bedroom of, of Lee Wabransky artwork because I'm such a fan, and he's a, and he's a friend as well. Um, but you keep going back decades before that. You know, Steve Lotus, Linda Harto was one of the best ever. Yeah, true. Um, these people have been able to capture the landscapes in a way that I never can. And um, that is a unique perspective on the game. I think what we found, and I think somebody captured in saying so well with my meetings for this year, is that I'm offering a different perspective on the game of golf and a different conversation. Um, and uh, I think drawing was also, you know, I think when I taught you calligraphy, it's because drawing and handwriting was was becoming so much of a pastime. I think when I finished doing architecture classes in 96, everyone after me learned how to do architecture on AutoCAD, you know, through computers. So right. handwriting and drawing has been kind of going away and I'm, I may be trying to preserve that a little bit. Um, so what I'm trying to do, Steve, is just, draw these pieces that keeps the history of our game in the forefront and it keeps it on the, the tips of our tongues. And I think when we really appreciate the game that we're playing today, it's because the conversation we just had earlier is we understand how we got here and we understand all the people that paved the way for us to make the game what it's become and what we love. Um, so we praise those people. And um, not only I think with my artwork, you know, is not so much just the players, but it's, the courses that have hosted these moments that we're, that we're trying to celebrate, they play a key role in this whole story. Um, so archive, the name comes from uh, really my time at Marion. Uh, they have this great room within the clubhouse called the archive room. And that's really where I think my love for history really developed. Uh, it was born. Um, the 22, uh, as we went to copyright the, the name of the company, archives, you know, like most things in the world, everything's already taken. Uh, nothing's original. Uh, <laughs> that company was taken. So to differentiate and trademark, uh, we added a number to it. Um, our company was really born on the 2nd of February of this year. So 2-2-22, I was pitching a piece of artwork, which people will see on the on the uh, website, uh, to Brendan Walsh at the Country Club. And uh, just sharing the, the same story that I'm sharing with you. And Brendan was really the first person to say, look, I'm, I'm all in on what you're doing. We love it. We want to have it here. Uh, send this up after this year's U.S. Open. And I think that meeting with Brendan was where I started to really give consideration. Is, is this a road that we should go down? Um, and there's been a lot that it's followed, but uh, Archive 22 really started there. And what I'm really just trying to do is just capture golf history through uh, hand-drawn artwork, storytelling like we're doing today. And um, we'll see if I'm smart enough to get into writing at some point. <laughs> why, why is this history so important to you though? I mean, you, you, you definitely outlined it uh, towards the beginning of our talk here of, of how, I mean, your, your breadth of history and understanding the game and all the way back to, you know, the old Tom Morris and all of that. But you know, why is it so important to you? I think, again, I think I'm just, I'm such a product of the people that I've been around um, and the places that I've been. Um, the person that we both worked for, uh, Greg Lecker, who was the pro at Canoebrook uh, for so many years, when I first interviewed with him in 20, well, not even 20, 1998, as a 19-year-old, one of the questions he had asked me in the interview, he said, you know, I'm sure with a name like yours, you've heard of Chandler Harper, haven't you? And I'm, you know, I'm 19. My world is as big as, uh, as my bubble at college. And I said, you know, does, does he go to Campbell? <laughs> He's like, no, he doesn't go to Campbell. He goes, you're kidding me. You've never heard of Chandler Harper? <laughs> so my first assignment with Greg was I had to go to the library. This is well before Google and the internet. I had to look up Chandler Harper. Now, he was the 1950 PGA champion at Scioto, beat uh, Hank Williams Schooner four and three, uh, won the first televised golf tournament. But the point that Greg was making to me during that interview, he, he shared with me later, is that I think as golf professionals, we are the end all be all of all these conversations, whether it's, you know, what ball or club should I play? 
you know, how can I make more three footers? Um, anything that has to do with the game, but especially the history of the game that, you know, when people ask us about these things that we're supposed to be the experts and that really sunk in with me, uh, Bob Ford reiterated it, you know, having been the pro at Oakmont for a long time and then working at, at Marion and Hazeltine, I think when people come to these, these great cathedrals of golf, they're coming there because the course is great, but because of all these moments that have happened there before, I think golf is this unique game where you can, you know, you can't always go play baseball at Yankee Stadium or throw a football at Lambeau Field, but you can go tee it up at Pebble Beach. Um, you can go tee it up at, at Torrey Pines, Beth Page, and a lot of the publics, and maybe you get the invitation to play some of these other great places. But um, that is the connection, I think, between our past. That's why so many people go to the old course at St. Andrews, right? It's That is the birthplace of golf, is that we really want to understood understand what's happened before us. And uh, that resonates deeply with me. I just have a, an enormous appreciation for the people that have come before us. Um, I'll close and kind of say that, you know, when that when that movie Tommy's Honor uh, came out a couple of years ago, outlined the story of old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris, you know, people that really made the golf profession what it is, you know, I'd ask my staff, I'd say, guys, you know, should I get tickets for everyone to go see the movie? And they're all like, eh. And I said, you know, that's fine. It, you know, if you guys don't care, you know, where our profession started from, then I'll just go by myself. And um, <laughs> so I, I hope more people would take notice um, because there are so many pioneers in this game. We talked about it enough already, you know, what Jack and Artie's influence on the game was, and of course, Tigers, but um, so many people well before that that paved the way uh, to what we get to experience today. Yeah, no, no doubt about that at all. So you didn't just launch this company today. This isn't something that just, okay, we're just going to, we're going to do this off the cuff today. This, there's actually been a, a bit of a journey that you've gone on since leaving Hazeltine. And can you, can you give us the, the cliff notes of that journey or uh, just tell us some, tell us some, how, how this path has been and, you know, where we're going to see your first piece. Yeah. So, when we resigned from, from Hazeltine in the fall of 21, uh, we didn't have, this wasn't the plan. I would say what we're doing today wasn't even the top 50. Um, there were some things that I was interested in uh, that I started pursuing. Um, but this really didn't start getting on our radar until uh, I was working with Shane Ryan. All right, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. What else did you want to do? We got to, we got to know that. I mean, like, I mean, you're yeah. going to, you know, you're going to be this, you know, this next greatest artist of the world, but what, what sort of other things do you want to do? You know, there were, there were a few club pro jobs that had come open that fall that were intriguing um, that I think, you know, I, I really wanted to pursue uh, just because I had such an admiration for the clubs that were available. And I thought they were they were a little bit of a different speed than Hazeltine. Um, and I was intrigued by those. I was talking to the USGA about just different admin roles within the USGA. I, you know, I grew up in Far Hills, uh, Baskin Ridge. That would have been going home for me. Um, and then I was doing looking at a couple of things even outside of golf. Um Education with the PGA was, was another one, um, and I may still get involved with that. Um, educating is, is very rewarding to me. Um, but as we're going and looking at some of those things, Shane Ryan, who's an author um, for Golf Digest, uh, was looking to put out a book on the Ryder Cup in 21. And I had spoken with Shane a number of times and was helping him with just some of the factual stuff uh, with 2016 and some of the, the things that I knew. Um, I had sent him this piece that I'd done for the Ryder Cup. And when Shane got it, he goes, yeah, I love this. I, I look at it all the time. And so I'm glad you liked it. It took me about four months to draw all that. <laughs> and he goes, tell me more about this. And I think when Shane really understood the story, uh, he wrote on it and it came out last Christmas Eve. Um, was an article called uh, PGA of America Pro's Artwork is One of Golf's Greatest Secrets. 
And once that artwork or that article came out, I started getting calls from different clubs and associations saying, Hey, we've, we've seen what you're, what you're doing. Would you be interested in doing this and, or doing that? And, um, I think that's when, you know, I started drawing a few things again for the USGA and talked to people like Brandon Walsh and went back to the USGA and said, look, we, we've kind of joked about this in the past, but let's have a serious conversation about what this would look like if, if I were to pursue this. Um, thankfully they were supportive. Um, you know, having a historical context that it really aligns with, with who they are. Uh, PGA in the same way um, was very supportive. So it wasn't as easy. There were some pieces that you'll see on the website today that um, were easier to get out than others because it, it just deals with one club. <clears throat> the piece um, that we're releasing today, the history of the U.S. Open, has 51 logos on it um, that don't belong to me. And I think when we put this out with Tom Coyne four years ago, you know, people started calling me and saying, like, hey, this is great. Where do I get it? How do I buy it? You know, I, I had a tough moment with a lot of these people to say, look, I, I'm really glad you like it. Um, we can give it away like Tom's doing, but but I can't sell this. Like, this doesn't belong to me. Um, you know, Steve, we play this game of honor. Um, we play by the rules when no one is looking. And um, I've said since day one, I, I refuse to make a dime off of this unless it is done the right way with the support of the USGA and the clubs that are involved with it. So the USGA was the first stop. And then uh, starting back in July, uh, we had to knock on 51 doors and say, look, here's here, exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. here's and you're, talk, you're talking about the creme de la creme of clubs all around the country uh, and that have, you know, huge boards and committees. And I mean, you know, it just had to be what a, what a 51 clubs. Wow. What a daunting process. Yeah. I think, you know, to, <laughs> to become, you know, to get elected as a politician, you just have to win the majority. Right. Um, <laughs> here we, uh, we have to get everyone. And um, so the approach was to say, look, here's what I've created. Um, your club, your club logo is featured on it. Um, if you will give me permission to use, here's what we can give back to you. And uh, if everyone sees this in the same way, you know, all 51 clubs will get the opportunity to sell the artwork. But I think what really resonated, Steve, with everyone was that each one of these clubs has so much pride to be associated with, whether it's a U.S. Open or a PGA Championship or a Ryder Cup or an Open Championship, um, that we're really celebrating them. Basically, what I'm saying is I've created something that celebrates you and your history and your association with the National Championship. And I think one by one that resonated um, so, uh, one, I'm excited to share it with, with the clubs that are featured on this artwork. Um, ex I'm excited to share it with people that love the history of the game, um, in our national championship. Mm -hmm. And I think even just right now, given what's going on in, in the landscape of golf, um, to really keep history again in, in the forefront when we don't know what the history of national championships are going to look like, uh, you know, six months. 12, you know, two, three, four years from now. Um, yeah, all the stuff going on with Liv and, I mean, everything. Yeah, right. Who's, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Yeah, there's a divide going on in golf, but you've, you've heard some players uh, like Rory or John Rahm say, look, it, I play to get my name on that trophy or on that list. Um, that's what drives me. And every player has a different motivation. Um, but again, I, I, what I hope will win out here in the end will, will be some sanity, um, but also some players that understand, like, you know, Majors should matter, um, and your place in history should matter. Um, it, it won't drive everyone, but it, but it should drive most. Um, so I think it's timely that we're bringing this in the marketplace. You know, we, we want to educate, especially a younger audience of uh, high school and collegiate players that are coming up about, you know, here's what's here's everything that's happened over the last 122 years of this championship. Um, 
and, 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 and see where the conversations go. Um, again, we just want people talking about golf and if having this up in your home or your office, you know, triggers one of these conversations and everyone has a different relationship with, with the game and their moments. Or if you're a member of one of these clubs, you're, you're proud of that. If you've gotten to play it or if one of your favorite players is on it, um, or if you someday dream about getting your name on it, um, it resonates with everyone differently. And I'm excited to see what the feedback is as we start to, to share this with everyone. Well, I think, uh, you know, looking from your social media accounts of stuff that you've already put out there, and I, I think uh, I think it'll be wildly successful. I just, my mind keeps going back to these 51 clubs, and I'm, I'm trying to picture each individual conversation that you had. And you don't have to name clubs or people or anything. Maybe give us just a sense of, like, what was the, the shortest yes and then the longest time it took to get a yes? <laughs> you know what this journey actually felt like. I have an analogy for it and I hope people will laugh at this, but um, what I would say is some clubs immediately were, were absolutely, yes, this is, this is us. And <clears throat> this is well done. Um, there was a pretty prominent club, very private club that I think summed it up best when uh, we approached them. I was pretty nervous that, you know, this isn't really something that I think they're going to want to be involved with. But um, they said, look, you know, a commercial, use of our logo like this is, is really a non-starter for us. <clears throat> but, you know, we're, we're proud of our association with the national championship and this is tastefully done. So if the other clubs are, are in on this, come back to us at the end and, and we will be too. And I think that mindset carried over to a lot of clubs that, um, you know, it just started to get momentum and you started to see some of the, the more recognizable names, uh, endorsing this, that um, it took on a real fraternal mindset in a, in a group think. And, um, I would tell you that the process was completely humbling, um, the amount of support. <clears throat> but also, Steve, I would tell you that the the story now is not really anything that I've created or drawn. The story, at least for me, is all these people that have been a part of my golf life to this point that as we were hitting speed bumps or not getting return phone calls or emails at different clubs, there, there were these people in my life that just seemed to be placed perfectly to go ahead and represent me and advocate for it at these places. And it's those people that, that really made this a reality. So if people get this artwork and they like it and they're proud to have it, you know, if you get a chance to thank, you know, some of these clubs and their involvement, it's, I've said from the start, this really belongs to them and it's a credit to them um, to get involved and at least give this a chance uh, to succeed. So um, again, humbled to just get to today yeah yeah i think i think it will succeed and it's definitely i haven't seen anything like it out there in the world of art um all right you're, you've wet our appetite enough where can we go buy these prints um where can we where can we get our hands on one the first place i'm always going to push people is um the only physical locations that will sell will be the 51 pass sites of the u.s open so where a u.s open has been played if you're close to pinehurst or Torrey pines or beth page or pebble beach you should be able to find the artwork there or at any of the private clubs. So, you know, call, make sure they have availability or inventory. Um, and if they're able to sell it to you, I'm going to push people towards that first. Uh, if you can't get there, archive22.com is launching today. You can go online. You'll see the history of the U.S. Open. A few of the other pieces that I've done for the USJ this year uh, through the amateurs and the U.S. Open. And then uh, we're still working on some more. Um, we're getting hopefully close with a few of the other major championships that we've referenced already on this call um, that we'll hopefully release in the spring. And and I'll keep drawing and uh, we'll keep seeing what we can get out there. But um, for those of you who are, are supporting us, uh, it's a thank you and uh, glad to have you along with our journey. 
Yeah, we got to get you drawn a, a Silver Club logo. That would be uh, that would be awesome. Maybe a, even a Silver Club podcast. I don't know. We'll 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 talk about that on the side. We'll. Uh, uh, very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, look, best of luck in the journey, in the start of this journey. And, uh, you know, we get 10 or 20 years down the road. Just uh, remember us when. All right. Uh, when you become a uh, megastar big. <laughs> Absolutely. No, Steve, it's um, I love how how interconnected we all are. Um, we all love the same game. Uh, that's our that's our connection. Uh, we all have a different connection with it. Um but I love how this game introduces to me to all these different people. And I'm excited about that. I, I'm looking forward to who I haven't met yet uh, through this journey. And uh, we'll see where it goes. But thanks for just giving me the opportunity to tell the story a little bit with you today. It was a great story. And uh, thanks so much. And look forward to seeing everything that you produce real soon. Awesome. Remember, thanks so much, Steve. Archive22.com. Go check it out. Thanks so much for listening to the Silver Club Podcast. This was episode number 63. Please subscribe and download all of our previous episodes. You're not going to want to miss who we have had on this podcast, from Dan Hicks to Bob Toski to Bob Ford, some of the greatest people that make up the fabric of our great game. Happy holidays to each and every one of you as we move into the new year. And remember to hop on silverclubgs.com. And I look forward to speaking with you about all the great things we have going with our golfing society and all the wonderful places we get to play golf around the world. Until next time, everybody, happy holidays, and we'll catch you on another Silver Club podcast real soon.